This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 30th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Doug Blair. Melbourne, Australia is the longest lockdown city in the world. Australia has taken an unprecedented approach to fighting the pandemic within its borders and has implemented extreme lockdown measures. On today's show, Virginia talks with Evan Mulholland, the Director of Communications at the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia. They discuss the recent protests against the lockdowns in Australia and the lessons other free nations should heed from the land down under. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news. In a Wednesday testimony to the House Armed Services Committee, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin claimed that it was the State Department's call to avoid evacuating American citizens and Special Immigrant Visa, or SIV, holders out of Afghanistan earlier, resulting in the scenes of chaos at Kabul airport after the Taliban took over the country. The revelation came in response to a question from Representative Jim Langevin, Democrat from Rhode Island, on why the Army didn't act faster to evacuate Americans and SIV holders. Per the Washington Examiner, Austin said, The call on how to do that and when to do it is really a State Department call. We provided input, and their concerns were, rightfully, that number one, they were being cautioned by the Ghani administration that if they withdrew American citizens and SIV applicants at a pace that was too fast, it would cause a collapse of the government that we were trying to prevent. Austin continued, We provided our input, and we certainly would have liked to seen it go faster or sooner. But again, they had a number of things to think through as well. Almost 600 employees are being fired from United Airlines after refusing to get vaccinated for COVID-19 by the airline giant's September deadline. Houston outlet KRPC reports that United CEOs Scott Kirby and Bret Hart wrote in an internal memo that 99% of employees were vaccinated by the deadline. That percentage doesn't reflect those who are requesting an exemption from the vaccine mandate on medical or religious grounds. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden announced a mandate requiring all employers with 100 or more employees to require their employees be vaccinated or tested weekly. His administration has yet to roll out the specific mandate, however. On Wednesday, YouTube announced it would begin banning the accounts of users promoting anti-vaccine content. In a post on the site's official blog, YouTube explained it would begin to actively remove content it called anti-vaccine misinformation, including that vaccines do not reduce rates of viral transmission or contraction, false claims about the makeup of vaccines, and claims that vaccines can cause a myriad of other side effects, like autism or infertility. While the company already had a policy in place specifically about misinformation surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine, the new policy expands the misinformation policy to all vaccines. The Post read, Working closely with health authorities, we look to balance our commitment to an open platform with the need to remove egregious, harmful content. We've steadily seen false claims about the coronavirus vaccines spill over into misinformation about vaccines in general, And we're now at a point where it's more important than ever to expand the work we started with COVID-19 to other vaccines. The Post continued, Today's policy update is an important step to address vaccine and health misinformation on our platform and will continue to invest across the board in the policies and products that bring high-quality information to our viewers and the entire YouTube community. 
Now stay tuned for Virginia's conversation with Evan Mulholland as they discuss the anti-lockdown protests in Australia and the lessons other free nations should heed from the land down under. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and youtube.com slash Daily Signal. I am so pleased to welcome to the show Evan Maholland, the Director of Communications at the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia. Evan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's not too often that we have the pleasure of having someone from Australia on this podcast, so uh, super fun to be, be bringing a little bit of Australia over to this side. How's the weather over there this time of year? The weather is pretty good, actually. Um, it, it, it's not too bad. It's usually, uh, we're coming out of winter, so okay. uh, that's, a, that's always a good thing. That is always a good thing. Well, we are we are headed that direction here in the States, but I'm excited just to chat with you a little bit today about what is actually happening on the ground in Australia. The Institute of, of Public Affairs is a public policy think tank that has been dedicated to preserving freedom and strengthening freedom in Australia ever since 1943. And you all are you're located right in Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne has made headlines recently over its lockdowns. It's uh, now the longest lockdown city in the world. And some of our listeners may have heard about the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne that have happened recently. So if you would, for those that, that haven't been uh, been following uh, Australia's news too closely, just explain what life has been like in Australia during the pandemic and really, gosh, that's over the past year and a half. Well, yeah, it's been, uh, I guess, tough for a lot of people. Um, if you judge Australia on one or two metrics being cases and deaths, then we've done rather well for a country of over 25 million people. We've had around 1,200 deaths and only 100,000 sort of cases um, of coronavirus. Um, of course, we know that the rolling lockdowns required to keep Australia's mindset of elimination strategy and zero cases affect other metrics like the economy, like business, like education, like mental health. Um, but for a long time up until now, the political class have been focused on um, cases of coronavirus and how we can bring them down. The Australian experience to start with was actually not much different to the US. We, have a com we had a conservative prime minister who very early on banned travel from China. And similar to Trump, the media went berserk. They called him, scorned at him, saying he was xenophobic, you name it. Um, but due to most of the laws being named at a, uh, made at a state level in regards to health response, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison started what 
what's now called the National Cabinet, um, with him in the, the state premiers, so the equivalent of the governors, uh, it actually put the state premiers on equal footing. So originally, we had the first lockdown in March. The political class told us it was two weeks to flatten the curve to allow the hospital system to catch up. This is March 2020. And then they put out the idea that we would suppress and live with the virus. What we actually got was a bizarre elimination strategy, this zero COVID strategy, which was mainly spooked by my city and state, Melbourne, Victoria, which last year had an 115-day lockdown. Sure, it beat the second wave of the coronavirus. There was a 1.700 cases a day, but it took an incredible toll on the city. Um, so we went to... We, the whole country moved to the ultimate aim of zero cases of coronavirus. Um, state premiers would go into lockdown, not to make sure the hospital system catches up, but for a tiny amount of cases so that it could, it could avoid the Melbourne experience of a long lockdown. Now, whether that works is is up for debate, and up for serious debate, because Melbourne is now in its sixth lockdown so if you want any proof lockdowns don't work that's probably one of them but and has overtaken Buenos Aires as the longest lockdown city in the world wow well and I know I've, I've heard that in watching some of the news coverage people are asking that question of do these lockdowns work and they're saying well you know Australia has seen fewer deaths they've seen fewer cases uh, but I think people you know ask well okay at, at what cost to, to the economy to people's lives uh, and ability to to do life normally. What has been the toll taken on Australians, on the Australian economy, on small businesses during these lockdowns? It's incredibly tough. The lockdowns have had a massive impact on, on business. For example, in the first five weeks of the Sydney lockdown, we estimated they cost around 10,000 jobs per day. I think one of the worst parts of the Australian experience is that we've seen what we've called the two Australias. So the public sector who come up with the rules, the bureaucrats, they've done quite well. They've gotten pay rises. They've even expanded in size. Um, and even big business has done quite well during the pandemic and during the lockdowns. But it's small business, your cafes, your wine bars, your bookstores, your, your, your small grocers, we've seen in free fall. Um, and it's shocking to see because at the end of the day, what you get is a smaller civil society and a bigger government. Um, almost half a million jobs in small business have been destroyed in just the last 10 weeks. Um, and pe people in the political class talk about a V-shaped recovery and that we might, you know, we will have a small dip, but we'll, we'll bounce right back. But what we've actually seen in reality is a K-shaped recovery, where on the upward slope of the arm are the public sector and big business, but on the downward sector of the arm is of the K is small business. It's your community groups. It's um, it, it, it's really quite shocking to see. I mean, the government originally put in a wage subsidy last year called JobKeeper, uh, and basically subsidised business the wages of all people so they could stay connected to their employer, that no longer exists. So it's even harder for people now going into lockdown um, to stay afloat. Hmm. And explain what exactly you mean by lockdown, because that can be defined so many different ways. What practically do these lockdowns actually look like? What are people allowed to do and not allowed to do? Okay, so I'll explain the lockdown experience in, 
in Melbourne, Victoria. That's where I live. Um, at the moment in lockdown, you're only, when they go into lockdown, it's usually, they say, stage four. They say it's a hard lockdown. Um, that means a 9 p.m. curfew. So you're literally not allowed outside of your house for any reason after 9 p.m. except for emergency. Um, you're only allowed two hours of exercise a day at all. Um, and you only have a few specific reasons to leave your home. It's basically, shop for essential items, um, any sort of emergency, um, but that's uh, and exercise. But that's about it. Otherwise, you have to stay home all day. Um, and this has caused se- severe impacts across the community. Um, the amount of hosp- uh, presentations for self-harm in Victoria has surged to record levels. Um, children have lost the better part of two years of their education here in this state, um, which is shocking. And there are people that are coming up to the end of their high school um, that are having to be given credits um, and having to catch up on those really formative years. I mean, young people are missing out on the best years of their life uh, due to these lockdowns. Um, when you know we were originally told we were going to live with this virus, and the path out seems slower and slower and slower. Mm. Wow. So have all of those factors then contributed to what we've seen in the news lately regarding the protests? Explain uh, a little bit about what happened uh, recently in Melbourne with these protests and really how Melbourne got to that point of people being so angry that they were taking to the streets. Yeah, I think the first thing to point out would be that there's kind of always been protests uh, on the uh, against the lockdown, but probably on a much smaller scale um, uh, than there was recently. Um, Last year, we saw really the militarisation of our police force, which is quite concerning. Um, We've seen... uh, We saw one woman in particular... Uh, a pregnant woman arrested for incitement for simply posting on Facebook about a protest. Um, That's how far the police have gone in tracking people's movements and activities in response to lockdown protests and trying to stop them. Uh, But what we saw recently in Melbourne um, was after the Victorian government here mandated the vaccine for construction workers, a sector that takes place mostly outside where the virus doesn't spread and doesn't deal with vulnerable people. Now, you'd think for a protest like this that construction workers would protest outside of, say, Parliament House (laughs) where the laws are made, (laughs) but no, they actually protested outside of the construction union offices because the workers deemed the construction union was too close to the government and didn't actually fight for them in pushing back against vaccine mandates. So you had, in response to about 300 of them showing up, the government then halted completely construction for two weeks uh, in a really bizarre move because the next day you had thousands of construction workers with no job to go to that were really angry and they came out in force. Wow. Uh, But also what we've seen is, is, I guess... A two-tiered response. Last year, they, the police really cracked down on, on anti-lockdown protesters. But when it came to the Black Lives Matter protesters, 
the Victorian police were like, oh, we want to work with you. We understand. We understand community sentiment and everyone has a right to protest. And they got to go out and protest. They weren't socially distanced. Um, mm. So I, I guess the two-tiered uh, response of the police as well in, in determining who they need to crack down on and who they don't I, was really disappointing as well. And is that sentiment pretty consistent throughout the country that a lot of Australians are are displeased with the vaccine mandates, with these extreme lockdown measures? Or is, is the country pretty divided on that? Yeah, I, I think that there is a lot of division. Um, uh, I, I guess if you're... Uh, there's less sympathy if you work in, say, the healthcare sector or in the aged care um, sector. Uh, vaccine mandates, I still don't agree with them. Um, but some states have tried to force vaccine mandates on, say, construction workers and teachers. That's where you get some some real division because you'll have a lot of people that will basically uh, be out of a job uh, through no fault of their own to take a medical procedure. That's something that's not really right. But... In terms of the division, I guess it, it more, more, we're more divided now than we were. Um, and I think there was a bit of Stockholm syndrome. People are happy to be locked up temporarily to avoid being locked up longer like Melbourne. Um, states that locked down hard and fast and, and, and saved their state, I guess, from the coronavirus were returned with massive majorities at local elections. Um, also, the media has scared people senseless. Um, people in Australia are more afraid of COVID than any other advanced economy. Um, uh, we did some polling that found that 59% of New South Wales residents in particular believe the media has been alarmist on the COVID-19 situation in Greater Sydney. Um, so I think people are actually getting sick of it. The, the media really overhyped um the impact of, of COVID-19, um, whereas most people who were living with the virus, like in the US, understood it was a serious virus, but at the end of the day, you had to get on with life. Um, people are very afraid of the virus in Australia. Here in Victoria, we actually have already over 70% of Victorians have a first dose of the vaccine. Um, that's more than most places in the US, yet they're constantly relying on the experts and the models, and we've seen this sort of doctor democracy, um, whereby the um, our political class, our political leaders have outsourced all of their decisions to the medical advice. But the medical advice is only sort of one element that you need to take into account. The job of a politician is to take into account a lot of other factors as well in the community. Um, so we've still got lockdown for probably another six weeks when we're now one of the most vaccinated countries in the world but they're relying all on this modelling and and expert advice to uh, bring us a path out of lockdown that seems to be quite slow. So, in your assessment, what has driven you know the the fear of the lockdowns, these extreme measures? Because, as you said, you know at at the beginning of the pandemic, like like we did as well here in the U.S., it was two weeks to slow the spread, and um, you know everyone was sort of on board but what shifted in australia to get to the point where you know you say that the police have taken on a little bit more of an extreme approach to enforcing these measures and there's a curfew by 9 p.m you have to be inside who has been driving this it basically a lot of the the state premiers um now 
a, a, the this basically when the prime minister started this national cabinet, what he did is elevate the state premiers. Uh, to the same level as him. So they got an incredible amount of power. They got an incredible amount of airtime. A lot of them were doing d- big daily press conferences, which became a performance art. And so the that really heightened the tone uh, and the fear. Um, and a lot of the other premiers in other states really wanted to avoid the Victorian experience of having a long lockdown. So they would instantly lock down they would, in most cases, stamp out an outbreak within about a week. Um, but it meant that um, for them, zero cases was freedom. Uh, but as we go along, along and along more, zero cases actually means zero jobs. It means zero hope. It actually means zero freedom uh, at the end of the day because you're not getting on with life. Um, so... I think what we're seeing in Australia is when the political and cultural elite of your country slowly chip away at fundamental freedoms without hardly anyone fighting for it. And I think it can happen elsewhere too. Anthony Fauci, your top expert last year, actually praised Australia's response in stamping out the coronavirus and suggested that America should have followed the Australian experience. Whereas I would say, no, absolutely not. Please go the other way because what it's taken is an incredible toll on the people. What it's taken is basically the militarization of the police force to stamp out any dissent. Um, and, and it's, as I said, taken an incredible toll on people's mental health. You can't just lock people up for the better part of two years. That's, that's not a good way to go about living. I mean, you know, we're saying we're saying now that we have to live with the virus. Only now, the pandemic started in March last year. People just want to get on with life. Hmm. The New York Times recently published a story titled "Has COVID Cost Australia Its Love for Freedom?" Evan, what do you think? Has has the pandemic cost Australians that that deep love of freedom and has it created maybe permanent damage uh, regarding Australia's freedom? I think so. I, I do worry about how quickly our freedoms were taken away. And now Australia has this great reputation of, of, of individualism about pushing back against authority. Um, but what we've seen is that a lot of people, particularly last year, less so now, actually liked being told what to do, liked the lockdowns, liked getting through them. Um, uh, But these things don't happen in a vacuum. As I said, they happen when sort of the political and cultural elites very slowly pick away at at different freedoms. And we've seen a lot of state governments pass emergency powers that will give them an incredible amount of power. And also one of the worst part of it, many of them have actually cancelled and suspended their parliaments which means there's basically no opposition in a democratic sense to what they're saying. In many cases, the media have been um, doing the work of the government, in, uh, going very easy on different governments around the country um, and, and ratcheting up the fear to people, um, which I think has had a lot of effect as well. Yes, Australia is a prison colony, you'd think we'd be um, uh, pushing back against authority. Uh, But it said that, you know, we're we're most likely also 
a, uh, a country of prison officers as well. Um, so as I said, it, I think it's there, there was a bit of Stockholm syndrome in that people just wanted to be wanted a pathway through. That pathway went a different way than so many other countries. Um, our pathway, I think, could have been different. Um, and hopefully, in response to this, um, we'll see you know lots of reviews and our pathway in the next pandemic, God forbid, might be a little bit more sensible. Hmm. We are talking with Evan Muhallan, the Director of Communications at the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia. Uh, Evan, I, I know we have heard that you know Australia is looking towards, okay, they're starting to create a reopening plan. We've seen the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, say once the country reaches 80% uh, vaccination rate, then you know, things will start opening up again. Uh, but I was also looking at uh, just considering, you know, the, the future of Australia and, and what is next for your country. The Heritage Foundation 2021 Index of Economic Freedom ranks Australia as the third most economically free nation in the world, just behind Singapore and New Zealand. So as we continue to think about, you know, the future of Australia, do you think Australia, specifically Australia's economy, is going to be able to bounce back and have that same economic freedom that we know it's enjoyed for so many years? I hope so. Um, and I think we kind of proved at the start, our economy kind of bounced back at the start of this year when there was a, about a five-month period where there wasn't any lockdown. So I think it has proven to be resilient. Um, still very much the mindset is in Australia uh, might be a bit different to Australia. People are much more aware of China and the aggressive stance it's taken on a lot of issues, how aggressive it's been towards Australia. Um, it actually put economic sanctions and trade sanctions on Australia and tariffs up because Australia was one of the first to call for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. Because I guess we're so close to China <laughs> geographically, people in Australia are actually much more aware um, of uh, the rising power in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the recent uh, announcement of an alliance between Australia, the UK and the US actually went, went down really well in Australia. Um, so we do value freedom and we do uh, Australians do support pushing back against coercive powers like China and are very supportive of our allies like the, the US and the UK um, on an economic front as well. Australians love free trade. Australians love trade deals. Whenever a government does a trade deal, um, <laughs> their popularity goes up. So I do think Australia ultimately uh, is always going to be an economically free nation. Um, it's our other freedoms that aren't economic uh, that have been impinged upon and also economic as well, given they've sh literally shut down businesses. But I am optimistic in that sense that Australia will continue to be an economically free nation. And what are the lessons that you think other countries should be taking from Australia right now? Well, that lockdowns don't work. Um, <laughs> uh, if lockdowns work, Melbourne, Victoria, where I am, wouldn't be in our sixth lockdown. Um, you can't, you can't, it's impossible to get rid of a virus. Now, some people think it, that it is, um, but that would require Australia being closed off to the world forever. Australia has a hotel quarantine system where if you decide to come to Australia, um, you have to quarantine for two weeks uh, in a hotel uh, before you're allowed out into the general community. Now, um, 
what's annoyed a lot of people is that uh, there are some who are able to skip that process. Uh, process. U.S. celebrities, for example, Zac Efron and whoever else, are able to skip that process, but regular people are not. So a lot of Australians through the entire pandemic have been stranded overseas because airlines have severely limited their flights. Um, but I do think you know slowly um, we're getting to a path out. But if Australia had its time again, I don't think it would be doing what it did. Um, and it's not a guidebook for any other country at all into how to properly manage a virus. Australians uh, have become obsessed with case numbers uh, and that mindset is only just changing. The mindset always for a pandemic like this should have been on deaths and hospitalisation, building medical capacity to cope so your hospital system can cope with an outbreak and then getting on with life. That's how a normal country should go about dealing with a pandemic. Evan, before we let you go, just tell us a little bit more about the work that you all do at the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia and also how our listeners can can follow your work and get involved if they want to. Yeah, no worries. Well, the RPA uh, was, uh, as you said earlier, started in 1943, started by a bunch of industrialists, um, including uh, Sir Keith Murdoch, the father of Rupert Murdoch, lots of big Australian weights of industry pushing back against the tide literal of literally socialism. Um, so the Institute of Public Affairs have played a key role over so many decades in fighting for freedom in Australia, uh, fighting for freedom for the next generation, working with, with young people in our universities to support free speech and, and free exchange of ideas and also a, a, a world-class research program looking into things like the dignity of work, like the rule of law, like our fundamental freedoms, which definitely matter most at the moment. Um, we receive absolutely zero government funding as a matter of principle. That means we can only do the, the things we do without, with the support of our, our generous supporters. We've got over 7,000 members around Australia. Um, so if people want to um, check out the IPA, they can they can head to IPA org.au uh, there's a lot of research on their opinion pieces uh, media appearances uh, reflecting on the current state of Australia particularly the pandemic we've done a lot on a lot of research on lockdowns not just on uh, lockdowns but the economic impact of lockdowns the mental health impact of lockdowns the educational impact of lockdowns as well um, so yeah head to ipa.org.au uh, and they can people can see our research Excellent. Evan Mulholland, the Director of Communications at the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia. Evan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.